happy 4th of July to you all. Uh, it's it's going to be a good day. Not as hot as last week, but a good day. Listen, to, to worship God and to hear his word is the best way to begin a day that celebrates freedom. It's the best way. Jesus was saying to those Jews who have believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But when a people or a nation turn their backs on the truth, freedom is lost. It is the truth that makes us free. It is standing in the truth and on the truth, the absolutes of God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the freedom that we celebrate, that undergirds all other that we might sense that we have. All man-made freedoms go away eventually. God's freedom stands. Amen? Well, we have finished Numbers. We're not going to be in Numbers. Um, I I don't even know where I'm going to be, but it's going to be somewhere. Uh, In the next few weeks, it's a little interesting. Cheryl and I are leaving soon for our adoption court date in Ghana. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. But because of that, I didn't want to launch into Deuteronomy and start another series and go, you know, a chapter or two in, and then we had to leave and then come back and try and pick up where we left off. So I've been praying about what to teach in the one or two Sundays that I'll be here before we go. And that's kind of what what I'm expecting, and I don't know, the Lord knows, but this Sunday, next Sunday, I began thinking, and and I don't don't like topical teachings, because that depends way too much on me to figure out what people need to hear, and so I'm not really interested in doing that. I'd rather just kind of go verse by verse like we do, and it's, it's a whole lot more focused, and then God gets to decide what we talk about. But I found myself in this interesting place having just finished numbers. So I'm thinking, okay, what do we do? What do we talk about? And something dropped into my heart. I, I had a sense of this really two or three weeks ago. And, and these, these are some things that I, I, I think about off and on, not just the things we're going to talk about this week and next, but I think often about the fact that in the church today, we have so many terms that are confused, We have so much of our faith that is informed more by culture than it is by the Bible. That's one of the reasons why we're intent on going through the word at the bridge is we let the Bible teach us truth and not culture. We listen to the word of God to understand what is real, what is true. And so this Sunday and next, I'm going to pause and talk about two truths and try to look at it from a biblical perspective. This is basic, and yet as basic as it may be, it is something that is confusing and unknown among many Christians. I know this by conversations. I know this by the things that I read. Two essential truths, heaven and hell. Heaven and hell. What do you believe about heaven and hell? Those are two big words, two broad words, two eternal words, although there are people who would even argue that. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Matthew chapter 10 and prepare yourself I don't know if any of you are planning on going to a 4th of July parade today, but we are going to parade through the scriptures this morning. And I want to challenge you to try to stay with me everywhere we go. This is unusual. Normally, we have one place that we kind of sit. In fact, Trish, I was just telling you last week that just open your Bible and just stay in that one place, and it'll be fine. Well, we're going to be all over the place this morning. 
So stay with me. It's important. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, page 983 in my Bible. Matthew chapter 10, and pick it up in verse 28. And we're going to take hell head on this morning. We're going to see what Jesus, what the scriptures have to say about this truth. And remember all the while, stay with me because heaven's next week. (laughs) Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, Jesus says, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, and Lord Jesus, we we listen and we ask for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So two to three weeks ago, again, I get the stirring in my heart to, to start teaching on the basics of heaven and hell. Some of this you might say, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. I think you're going to find some things this morning that you'll say, oh, I didn't realize that. I did. It's interesting because I was thinking about this two weeks ago and then last week, the worst heat wave recorded in history of the Pacific Northwest hit us. The heat wave, the heat dome, and I thought, wow, how appropriate (laughs) to talk about this. One of the news sources I read said the heat wave that baked the U.S. Pacific Northwest and British Columbia, Canada is of an intensity never recorded by modern humans. By one measure, it is more rare, get this, than a once in a thousand year event, which is really good to hear because I don't want that to happen again. I grew up in Southern California. We knew such heat, but you know what? I have become over 20 plus years a wimpy Washingtonian and proud of it. <laughs> but what's funny is then last week, the, some of the guys were meeting and talking, and, uh, and Jim Hutchinson, I'm going I'm to quote you, Jim, uh, actually said to Les, he said, I told the Lord I can't go to hell. I can't stand the heat. <laughs> And I laughed about that, and I so agreed. I so agreed. And and there was more than just the surface on that comment. I can't stand the heat. I don't want the heat. I don't want to be part of that heat. And I laughed, and then the reality of hell, truly it came to mind. And I don't like to talk about hell. In fact, I think the reason why most churches don't talk about hell is pastors don't want to talk about hell because no one wants to hear the word hell. No one wants to use it. No one wants to think about it as a, even a potential. And there are many who would say in culture today, ah, fire and brimstone, that, those are just figures of speech. In fact, they're just used to scare people into a religion. So why waste our time? Let's just skirt that issue. Well, according to this book, hell is for real. So is heaven. That's next week. 
The reason I believe God wanted me to take up this teaching, and I, I've asked him several times because it wasn't clear at first. Was this the Lord? Was this the Lord saying, Rick, teach on heaven and hell? It was just kind of my idea. And I kept saying, Lord, is this? And, and I, he's been real quiet, which may mean I'm in big trouble. But I, I really do believe this is what the Lord wants us to focus on. And the reason isn't last week's heat dome The reason is because our terminology, as I said a moment ago, especially related to hell, is more informed by traditions and culture than it is by the Bible. The Bible informs us on these things very clearly, as you will see. But then books come out. Several years ago, that book by Rob Bell called Love Wins. And the whole thing is universalist teaching that just everybody's going to end up in heaven anyway, so it really doesn't make any difference, and that's just the way it is. Love wins. Sounds really nice. Completely ignores the scripture. And then Bart D. Ehrman. I don't know if you've heard of Bart Ehrman. He was a, a professor of religious studies, still is, professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Bart Ehrman, a, a, a theologian of our times, a, a thinker, a Bible professor, and by his own uh, words, he became an anti-C.S. Lewis. That is, he thought his way out of faith rather than into faith. And so he's agnostic now. He doesn't believe it's true. He still teaches it. I don't even know why you would take a class from a guy who doesn't believe what he's teaching. It's amazing. The uh, Time magazine, that bastion of truth in our culture, said, this guy, Bart Ehrman, is a leading authority on the New Testament and the history of early Christianity, and he just released a book called Heaven and Hell. It's just coming out now. In this book, he says, and this is true, 72% of Americans believe in a literal heaven. 58% believe in a literal hell, which I found interesting that it was actually that high. But the professor, he claims neither Jesus nor the Hebrew Bible he interpreted endorsed the view that departed souls go to paradise or to everlasting pain. Mr. Professor... Have you read your Bible? Because the Bible, again, is very clear, as we will see. Even our jokes and our cartoons and our humor distort the truth of heaven and hell. Jesus said the truth will set you free. So so let's get biblical, and I'm going to take this in two parts this morning. First part is terminology of the Old Testament, the Older Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Let's see what, what we were told, what they were told, the ancients throughout that time prior to Jesus. And then part two, we'll get to the teachings of Jesus. So part one, the terminology of the Older Testament regarding hell. Did you know that the Hebrew Scriptures never used the word hell? Not a single time. You won't find it. It's funny, I looked this up. There, there is actually a modern Hebrew slang word for hell. I found this on the Hebrew news source in Israel, Haaretz, and they have a thing called word of the day. And the word of the day was the word for hell that Israelis will use in their slang today. And it appears, Haaretz says, in phrases like, Latzazel imze, which translates the hell with it. Or phrases like, Lech Lazel which translates to go to hell. Thing is, this word lazazel or yazazel doesn't mean hell. In fact, let me ask you, you Bible students, dig deep. Does that, this word azazel sound familiar to you? See, because azazel is in 
the Older Testament. But it doesn't mean hell. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 8, verse 10, and verse 26 uses the word. Here it is. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat, Azazel. The goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement on it. This is talking about Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, to send it into the wilderness as the Azazel, the scapegoat, or for Azazel. What does Azazel mean then? Well, it's a rare Hebrew noun, and it possibly means complete destruction. So in that way, you could equate Azazel with hell. If, if, a, if an Israeli said, Lech Azazel, go to hell, then you could say, well, okay, maybe if it means complete destruction, this word used for the scapegoat, it also can be translated a rocky precipice. Now, this, some of this is guesswork by translators because the scapegoat, according to the Mishnah, the Jewish writing, was led to a steep cliff and pushed over backward to kill it, the Azazel. So they would say, oh, well, it means then, it, it means a rocky precipice or, or a precipice of destruction, perhaps. Well, there's a third definition if you just let the word be the word because Azazel is a Hebrew compound word, two words that make it Azazel, Azah, and zel. And azah means goat, and zel means gone. That's it, goat gone. So really what Israelis are saying today is they're saying, who the goat gone do you think you are? (laughs) It is hotter than goat gone today. That is what azazel means, and that's the closest word you get in the Hebrew scriptures to the word hell. Goat gone. The goat that becomes the scapegoat. Interesting to me that there's a more serious problem with the word hell. Some could say, well, I see the word hell all over the Older Testament in my King James Bible, and you will. You will. If you're reading from the King James translation, you'll see the word hell used multiple times in the Hebrew Scriptures. The problem is it's a doctrinal blemish. The word is not there. And when we trust, this this is why... We try to search out some of the word meanings. This is why we will look into these things uh, in the Hebrew and the Greek. It's just to be sure, is, is that the right word? Because sometimes it's not. And I don't say that to undermine the truth of Scripture. I say that to say be students of the word and don't just assume things. But in the King James translation, you see the word hell. In the New American Standard Bible, you won't see the word hell anywhere in the Hebrew Scriptures. Why is it there in the King James? Here's why. Because the King James translation, while still an excellent translation, Elizabethan, a little bit difficult to read in our culture now because we don't talk like that anymore, but it's an excellent translation. However, it was heavily influenced by centuries of Roman Catholicism. You just need to know that. It's influenced by the Latin Vulgate translation, the first Latin translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, And so there's Latin in there. The Apostles' Creed influenced the King James translation. And in the Apostles' Creed, by the way, the Apostles' Creed, many of you grew up saying that, depending on what church you grew up in, saying that on almost a weekly basis, repeating the Apostles' Creed, the whole idea of the Apostles' Creed, which was produced around 390 A.D., was to have a a shorter version for the whole book. See, the thing is, God didn't give us a shorter version. He gave us the whole book. Well, that takes a long time. Exactly. Well, that takes interaction with the Lord. Right on. 
That's what he wants. Spend your life. Well, it's going to take a lifetime to study that. Right. And a lifetime then with the Lord. That's the point. But anyway, the creeds are not a bad thing like some of the songs we sing. They give theology. They give truth. And I will say to you, in my opinion, the Apostles' Creed is excellent. Except for one little thing. One little thing. The line in it that says, descendant ad inferos which translates, he descended into hell. Jesus never went to hell. He never went to hell. I'll prove it to you, but you need to stay with me on this. Actually, the Apostles' Creed was preceded by the Nicene Creed, which was the Council of Nicaea. The Apostles' Creed was at the Council of Milan. They gathered together, and they came up with the Creed in 390. Well, in the Council of Nicaea, 325... So 65 years earlier, the Council of Nicaea had a similar phrase, but it was a direct quote. The direct quote was from Ephesians 4.9, where Paul writes now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Are you with me? So the Nicene Creed said he descended into the lower parts of the earth. The Apostles' Creed said he descended into hell. Big difference. Hell and the lower parts of the earth are not the same thing. Stay with me. Jesus never went to hell. Jesus, when he died, did descend, but not to hell. Chabad.org, a Jewish site, had an article that says, what happens after death? I went there because I was just curious, what is the modern Jewish theology about what happens to you now when you die? And they say, quote, heaven is not a place of halos and harps, nor is hell populated by red creatures with pitchforks depicted on the label of non-kosher canned meat. <laughs> I thought, well, that's pretty accurate, actually. But again, sadly, religious thought, Christian or Jewish, is usually more informed by human commentary and culture than by the word of God. Oh, that we would change that. In biblical terminology, so here we go. Biblical terminology in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Older Testament, the concepts of life and death came very early on. Very early on. In fact, I think Adam understood a whole lot more about life and death than we might think he did. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 tells us, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's the first time we see the word life. And man became a living being. The word life is chayim, lachaim. If you've heard that, the Hebrew phrase, to life. To life, lachaim. Lachaim, lachaim, to life. A little fiddler on the roof for you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. First time we hear that word. Die. Adam, because God says this to him, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die, Adam had to have some idea of what life and death meant, or that wouldn't have meant anything to him. If you say to a toddler, if you do this again, I'm going to give you an F, <laughs> the toddler would be like, and they would do it again. Even if they understood what an F was, they would probably do it again. You got to use language that's understandable. The Lord is speaking to Adam. He says, you're going to die if you do this. Adam had to have a concept of death. Had to understand at least 
that if he died, it would be the absence of life. In fact, the Hebrew word die is mot, M-O-T, and it means to, to be absent from life, to be slayed, killed, or executed. So when the Lord said this to Adam, Adam would have known, okay, if I eat from this tree, I will cease to be. At least I will cease to be what I am right now, a physical living being. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, a, a quick jump to the New Testament. Therefore, just as through, man one, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And men is anthropos, it's mankind, so ladies, you ain't off the hook. Death spread to everyone because everyone sinned. Death was introduced into the world because Adam sinned. Life and death very early on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, a little bit of good news. This is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual one. So it is also written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Life and death. But even death in the Older Testament never means non-existence. Death does not mean evaporation or, or soul sleep or a dream state. Death does not mean annihilation. A person dies and they just cease to exist altogether. Even in the Hebrew Scriptures, listen, Genesis 25, verse 8, and I'll have you turn with me in just a minute. But Genesis 25, 8, Adam breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And the Bible says, and he was gathered to his people. It doesn't say, and he took a dirt nap. <laughs> and he was pushing up days. It says he was gathered to his people. There's something right there that says, more beyond, he died. Yes, here, he ceased to exist here, but he did not cease to exist. He was gathered to his people. A physical, a, a living, that is, spiritual being. Abraham, by the way, was buried, you might recall this, in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, which opens out to the promised land. You could say the promised land right now is Abraham's front porch. Why did he buy that cave? The only thing he ever bought in the land ever? Because he wanted to step out into the promise. Because Abraham believed, and the Older Testament teaches, resurrection. So life, death, resurrection, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people from the dead, which he also received Isaac back as a type. That's why the whole Isaac process went forward. The Hebrew pastor informs us, gives us commentary of what was going on in Abraham's mind when he raised the knife to slay his son by the command of the Lord. God knew he, was gonna, he wasn't going to make him go through with it. But Abraham didn't. Why did Abraham raise the knife? Because he believed that after he slayed Isaac, God would raise Isaac from the dead because Isaac was his heir. Isaac, couldn't, Isaac had to live. So from Abraham's mentality, Isaac would live again. Resurrection. He bought the cave to step out in his resurrection. Where was Abraham, however, gathered to his people? Death, in the Hebrew Scriptures, meant a cease to physical life and a waiting. A cease to physical life and a waiting. This is early biblical theology, but it taught that people have an eternal spirit, and it taught a resurrection, ultimately, to the world to come. 
And by the way, modern Judaism, this is just a side note, but if you want to know this, modern Judaism has a word for the world to come. They call it Olam Hava. And Olam Hava means the coming world of Messiah. Olam Hava Hamashiach is what they would say. But anytime they talk about the coming world or the world to come, that is believing Jews, they believe that Messiah is going to usher in a coming world. And that their forefathers, all the way back to Abraham, even further back, Noah, that the forefathers, these would be resurrected in this world to come as well. This has long been held traditionally among Jewish people. Well, turn in your Bibles to Job's chapter 7 because there was a contemporary of Abraham and his name was Job. We believe Job lived around the same time as Abraham, which is why there are many who believe, and I kind of subscribe to this, that Job may be the first book ever written in the Bible, even before Genesis, because Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote Torah. And if Job was a contemporary of Abraham, it would have been 400, 450 years before Moses that this book of Job was written. Job thought a lot about death. Now, if you had the experiences of Job, you probably would think a lot about death too. Job chapter 7, and I'm going to just read you several verses in Job. Follow me through on these. Job chapter 7 verse 9 says, when a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So is he who goes down to Sheol, does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. This is Job in his despair. Job saying, this is what happens. You die, you go to Sheol. He mentions Sheol. And if Job is the first book written, that's the first mention of the word Sheol. Verse 9. He goes down to Sheol, and that's it, Job says. But this is not it for Job. Turn over to chapter 11. Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11, verse 7. Now, this is spoken by Job's friend Zophar, who Zophar is not a very good friend to Job. But verse 7, he says, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? And that's true. That's true. So, so far got that right. Turn over to chapter 14. Job 14, verse 15. And suddenly we start to hear a little more of what Job really believed about Sheol. Job 14, 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. Send me to Sheol now. Just, just take me now, Lord. He is so, he is just despairing. I was just talking with my, with my in-laws, uh, Josiah's dad. He had COVID and he's recovered from it, but he was, we were talking about just yesterday how brutal it was and how even now he'll, he'll get out of breath. And, and it's been a long, long slog for him. But he said, Rick, there, there were days where I woke up in the morning after not really sleeping all night long, after being awake 48 hours because I was coughing constantly. And he said, uh, there were mornings I, I lay there and I just said, not because I was suicidal. He said, I, I'm, I've never been suicidal. But he said, there were times I said, Lord, if you want to take me, it's okay. I'm ready. And that's where Job is right here. When Job says, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, this place, Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. 
that you would set a limit for me and remember me. And I love this verse 14. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. My change. Job knows there's something more than Sheol. There is a change that's a coming. By the way, the word Sheol, Sheolah in the Hebrew, it translates very simply the waiting place of the dead. But note that it's not the place of the dead. It's the waiting place of the dead. It's that in the Hebrew, and this is still pre-Jesus, in the Hebrew and in those days, it was understood when a man dies, when a woman dies, they go to Sheol, they go to the waiting place. They don't go to hell, and they don't go to heaven. They go to Sheol, the waiting place of the dead. Skip ahead to Job 26. Job 26. We get a little more insight. Job 26, verse 6. Naked is Sheol before him. That is uncovered, seen, known. God is fully aware of Sheol. It's a, it's a, it's a misty, dark, mysterious place to humanity at the time because we, we don't know what it's like there. We, don't, we haven't had a clue. We haven't looked inside. So it's, but, but to God, he knows. He knows every aspect of Sheol. And Avedon has no covering. Interesting, Avedon. Avedon, what is Avedon? It's both a place, destruction, it means destruction, Avedon. And it is a person, a destroyer. So it can be used either way. It's a noun and it can be used either way for a person or a place, a place of destruction, a person of the destroyer. And just note these, don't turn there right now, but Proverbs 15:11 says, Sheol and Avedon lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of men. So the preacher Solomon in Proverbs actually says, uh, he says that that's the deal. God is fully aware of Sheol and he is fully aware of Avedon. There's nothing hidden from him, not even the place of destruction. So suddenly we've just hit on something. There's Sheol, the waiting place, and there's Avedon, this destruction. What's, what's that about? Revelation chapter 9 says they, that is speaking of demons of this pit, have as king over them the angel of the abyss and his name in Hebrew is Avedon, and in the Greek, Apollyon. Now, I mention that because that's as close as you're going to get to hell described in the Older Testament. There is Sheol, there is this place of destruction, and that's as close as we get. But there developed a definite sense among the Jewish people of, of the potential of destruction in death. That there's Sheol, but there's destruction as part of this as well, destruction along with the waiting place. There seems to be two dynamics going on here as this unfolds over time and understanding begins to come. Job chapter 30, skip ahead there, Job chapter 30, verse 22. And I just think this is beautifully poetic. But Job again is speaking and he says, you lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride and you dissolve me in a storm. You wipe me out, Lord. For I know that you will bring me to death, mot, and to the house of meeting for all living. Remember how Abraham was gathered to his people? 
He was gathered to the house of meeting for all living. In other words, everyone living is going to go there. Except the raptured church. Just put a little whispered Biden for you right there. <laughs> Except the raptured church. The raptured church, there is a group of people, marvelously, marvelously, wonderfully, and you can go back and listen to a recent rapture teaching. I think it was back in January if you want to. But a people who will never taste death. And I have already signed up. I put in my application. I've registered for this. And I hope to be part of that. But the reality is throughout all history, everybody goes to the house of meeting for all the living. Everybody's going to die. Everybody will be gathered to that place. But there's still this sense, okay, house of meeting, that doesn't sound so bad. Avedon, destruction sounds pretty bad. So what's the deal with these two places? Jacob Back in Genesis 37, verse 35, after seeing the animal blood-soaked robe of his son, Joseph. Remember how his sons lied to him and they tried to, they, they threw Joseph in a pit and then they soaked his robe in blood and they, and they showed it to Jacob and they tried to convince him that Joseph was dead. And what did he say? He said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. Or if you look at the Hebrew, he literally says, I will go down to Sheol in mourning to my son. I'm going to die and go to my son because that's where he is. Where? In the house of meeting, in the place where everybody goes. I'm going to be gathered to my people and my son will be there, Jacob is thinking. You may remember Korah's rebellion. We just recently read about this, number 1633, talking about they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Or Deuteronomy 32, verse 22, which is speaking of a rebellious Israel and says, God says, a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest parts of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And there we see fire associated with judgment. Now, fire has already been associated with judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have a very visible on earth tangible physical representation of God judging those cities and destroying them by fire. So fire and judgment already was a thing. But in Deuteronomy 32, for the very first time, we see fire associated with the lowest part of Sheol. Not all of Sheol, but the lowest part of Sheol, which tells us there's a hint there that there are different regions in Sheol. Even before we get to the New Testament, we recognize, now, okay, there's Sheol, there's Avedon destruction, and apparently Avedon is a part of Sheol. Not all of Sheol, but the lower part. So people would die, they would go to Sheol, but some would end up in a place of fire, in a place of destruction. The idea of all this, a waiting place until resurrection, continued by divine revelation, it continued to be understood and David wrote this, Psalm 16, verse 10. And you want to really note this. These two verses are so key. Psalm 16, verse 10, where David writes, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Jesus didn't. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And David, a man after God's own heart, understood, I may be in Sheol, but I will not be abandoned there. He's going to show me the path of life. God's going to show me the way out. 
that yes, there is a place for waiting, but I'm going to wait and then I'm going to be led out. And so all the Israelites knew and taught, all that the Lord revealed to them in these ancient times was, get this, note this, Sheol, waiting place of the dead, with separate regions, one of them fiery. Avedon, place of destruction. And the hope of eternal resurrection. And that truly is about as much as was really known and understood in the Hebrew Scriptures. Daniel chapter 12. The prophet said in verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. All of a sudden, okay, there is something everlasting out ahead. Daniel prophesies, and this, this would have been more information. Okay, so, so some are looking at an everlasting life. Some are looking at an everlasting contempt. And let me be clear, the word everlasting in the Hebrew translates everlasting. And I say that because there are books written, volumes by pontificating professors trying to get out there and, and, and speak what they believe to be true and undermine the truth of everlasting. Well, the word doesn't really mean that. It actually means, you know, just for a temporary period of time. No, not true. Everlasting means everlasting. There's no other way to define that. You might say, well, okay, but, but what about all the Hebrew scripture teachings on the kingdom and the prophecies of paradise and of heaven? That's next week. We're not touching that right now. Today, modern Jewish mystics, and you've heard of the Kabbalah and, and all of that, they redefine Avedon, destruction. They view Avedon in, in connection with or in a similar way to the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Let me be very clear. Purgatory and Avedon to the Jewish mystics, both places are considered as impermanent places of punishment for purification. That people go there, go to purgatory, because they have a certain amount of sin that still needs to be burned off of them. They still need to be punished for it, but once they're punished for it, then they can be released and go on to heaven. It's a place where you pay, listen to me, where you pay for the sins that the blood of Christ just couldn't quite cover. You hear me on that? That's the problem with purgatory. And I'm not trying to slam Catholic doctrine. Well, I guess I am. But the thing with purgatory, purgatory assumes that the blood of Christ is insufficient. You have to pay something if you want to get into heaven. You have to pay for it. Well, the Bible tells us Jesus did it once for all. That his blood is completely sufficient. That's the truth. Amazing. Chabad.org, in, in an article called Do Jews Believe in Hell, says that's why our sages said repent one day before you die. <laughs> I mean, like, if, like, like we know, right? Oh, yeah, that's tomorrow. Okay, Lord, let's get some things straight here. <laughs> this is why he says you don't know the day or the hour because every one of us on the day before the day or the hour will be going, okay, time to get spiritual. They say, that's why we do this. He says, what should you do? What, and what should you do if you don't know which day that that will be? Repent today. Now that I agree with. <laughs> Understand according to God's word, there is no such place as an, there is an Avedon, but not as a place of temporary punishment. There is not a purgatory. According to the scriptures, that is a man-made concept 
For purification beyond the purification of the blood of Christ, no such thing, no such place. You are either fully washed in the blood or you are not. That's it. And there is no in-between. There's no partial. And by the way, good news, followers of Jesus, there is no residual sin. You're not going to get there and the Lord go, ah, you know what? Got a little stain. Got to go take care of that. I am washed fully by the blood of Christ. There is no blood so pure as the blood of Jesus. And there's no punishment greater than the cross, which is where he went and he took that on his shoulders. And John says, you've heard this verse, verse before, 1 John 2 verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Universalism? No. No, it's universal invitation. But what John is saying very clearly is his blood is sufficient to save anybody who comes to him in faith. Anybody. There's nobody so bad that he can't save them. Nobody so good that they don't need the blood of Christ to wash them pure. So I mention all this because these Jewish mystics, again, they borrow from a familiar phrase to rename this place of punishment. In fact, they have another word that begins to be used in history and over time, they borrow from a valley just outside Jerusalem called Gehinnom. The Hinnom Valley or Gehinnom. Valley is Gai in, in, in the Hebrew. Gehinnom. Gehinnom. And as we shift to the Newer Testament now, understand, unlike today, unlike today, Jews of the first century clearly taught Gehinnom to be a place of post-judgment punishment. Not punishment for purification, but post-judgment punishment, not temporary, but eternal. In the first century, the first century that Jesus came into, Jewish thought already accepted that Gehinnom was a word that described eternal judgment, eternal incarceration, if you will, Gehinnom. Part two, the teachings of the Newer Testament. By the time of Jesus, another word was floating around. So we've got Gehinnom, and I'll talk more about that in just a minute. But there's another word floating around out there. It was a Greek word. And it was absolutely and very clearly understood to be the Gentile equivalent to the Hebrew word sheol. So the Greek word I'm about to tell you is the same by definition as sheol. Sheol was not hell. Remember, sheol's not hell. Sheol's the waiting place. It had a, a, apparently a fiery section to it, but it's a waiting place for resurrection to the future, either eternal, uh, eternal paradise or eternal condemnation. But it was not the eternal place, Sheol. So this New Testament equivalent word is Hades. Hades. Trying to keep this as simple as I can, but, but Hades is the equivalent. How do we know that Hades in the Greek is the same as Sheol in the Hebrew? Well, we know this because when Peter quoted directly from David in Psalm 16, he said, Acts 2:27, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Do you remember what we just read? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. 
Hades and Sheol, same thing. In fact, when the Jews got together about 280 or so years before Christ and wrote the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, everywhere the word Sheol appears in the Hebrew, they translated Hades in the Greek. Hades is Sheol. Sheol is Hades. Same place, not eternal, temporary. Same place, waiting for the eternal. Sheol and Hades. Jesus used the same word as well. So now turning your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to start flowing through some New Testament passages. Matthew chapter 11. By the way, while you turn there, sometimes as we do our teaching, we, 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 I put out a full plate of food, you know, and, and I'll give you a little more than maybe you feel like you can eat on a Sunday morning, and that is absolutely intentional. I'd rather give you too much than too little. But also, remember, this is always put up. This is on YouTube. You can go back and listen. My intent is to teach it, but then to leave it there so that we can refer to it. I refer to my own notes sometimes. But more importantly, we refer back to the scriptures. And I hope you're jotting down all, one, all 41 of those verses that are <laughs> behind me. I know some of you saw that and went, dude, I got a parade to get to. <laughs> well, then let's march on. <laughs> Verse 20 of Matthew 11. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile territories, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades, not hell, Hades. You will descend into Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why will they descend into Hades? Because that's where you go to wait for judgment. Okay? Jesus uses the word Hades. Skip over to Matthew chapter 16, and this one is vitally important. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, many of you know the story. They're up at Caesarea Philippi up in the north of Israel. Jesus is alone with the, with the apostles there and he's taken them on a little retreat to understand Messiah a little bit better. And it says in verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And that's the question. I can do a whole teaching on this right now. That's the question. It is not what church do you go to. It is not what is your tradition. What's your theology? No, it's who do you say Jesus is? That is the make or break question. That is always the issue. And so they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah the, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Why would they say that? They believed in resurrection. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, Mashiach. Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you just got a spiritual download. I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, pebble. 
And upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. This rock, Peter, your faith, the statement God just gave you is a rock that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the rock of your faith. And he says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Not the gates of hell. How many of you have quoted that and heard that and thought about that and, and even spoken it as, and the gates of hell will not prevail? It's not the gates of hell. It's the gates of Hades. So what does that mean? It means the church will not die. The gates of Hades will not prevail. The church will not die. The church will go on all the way until Jesus calls the church out. The church will not die. The church is not temporary. Death and Hades can't stop the wedding march of the bride to the groom. Amen? So we're on our way. And we have nothing to fear as followers of Jesus because the church will not die. Hades can't prevail. The church can't get sucked out of this world and into the waiting place of death. Church is forever. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And this is huge. Jesus, Jesus had such a way, didn't he, of teaching? Such a way of using common things to make things so clear, so understandable. In fact, I love this verse. Mark chapter 12, verse 37 says, the common people heard him gladly. Common people, not the theologians and the stuffed shirts of religion and not the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are too sad to know anything anyway. Not all of those. These, just your average Joe, right? Your average Karen. They, they just love to listen to Jesus. They heard him and was like, oh, that's so good. That's so true. I can believe, I get that. So Jesus begins teaching in Luke chapter 16. And in verse 19, he begins to tell a story. Note this, not a parable. Not a parable. This is not a parable. I believe this is an actual account. Jesus never says it's a parable. This is different than any of the parables that Jesus taught in that he actually names characters. Jesus never names characters in parables. There are named people in this. There's a named location. The specifics of it are unlike any other parable that Jesus ever told. And so he says, now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. And longing to be fed from the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom? Oh, remember, Abraham was gathered to his people. So Abraham would still be existent. Abraham's still in a waiting place as Jesus is describing this man, Lazarus, and he goes to Abraham's bosom. So he's gathered to Abraham's people. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Note that right there, the distinction. He was buried. Now, if the Bible taught soul sleep, that would be it. But Jesus says, no, he was buried and discovered that he was in Hades. So his body looked asleep as it was buried, but his spirit now is in Hades, and he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Where's that? The lower parts. 
Being in that part of Hades that is torment, that is fire, that is destruction. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And Jesus just ripped back the curtain on Sheol. Now we know what Sheol is. Now we know something of what Sheol looks like. There's a, a torment side there's a paradise side, and there's a great chasm over which no one can go. Impassable. And on this side was Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. By the way, that tells us where Abraham is in, or was in Sheol, right? Paradise. And it tells us where the rich, rich man was in torment. And he said, verse 27, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him prophetically, listen to this, Jesus speaking, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead as Jesus would rise from the dead, and that's not gonna persuade someone if they're not willing to listen to the word of God, if they're not willing to receive this word by faith, even if someone rises and you see that resurrection, they still are not gonna believe. Hades defined, now, Sheol, Hades, same place, defined for us, Abraham's bosom, paradise, an impassable chasm, and a region of fiery torment. Speaking of paradise, remember the thief on the cross? Hanging there beside Jesus, his life a disaster, his life a mess. He's hanging there about to die, no doubt looking over a lifetime and going, what a waste. What, I, what, what am I, I've never did anything worth doing. But faith came into his heart. Luke 23, verse 42, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom so from a Jewish perspective, he's just like, okay, I'm gonna die, I'm going to Sheol. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I, 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 my only hope is being crucified next to me. Remember me. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Paradise Sheol. Jesus did descend. Jesus descended. When he died, he descended. And so with him, the thief descended. And they went to Sheol, what the Bible would call the lower parts of the earth, not hell. Please do not confuse that with hell. They did not go to hell. They went to Sheol. They went to Hades. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, and you might mark this and, and, and look at it another time, but Ephesians 4, 8, Paul says, therefore it says, quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives 
and he gave gifts to men. Paul explains it. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean? Except that he himself also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And it's a wonderful truth that Sheol existed as was with paradise and with torment all the way until Jesus died. And when Jesus died and redemption was bought, all those who died before the cross in faith, all those who died trusting God, now redemption's paid for. He goes down and he goes to paradise Sheol and he takes captive, a host of captives, and leads their spirits home to be with the Lord. So that Paul now says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you die today in faith in Jesus Christ, your body goes into the ground and your spirit goes home to be with the Lord, not to Sheol. Paradise Sheol is closed down. There's no need for it anymore. (laughs) Torment Sheol is not. It is still in existence. Jesus so descended into Hades to set free, to lead out those captives to death who died in faith prior to the cross, and effectively he shut down paradise. But then overturn quickly Revelation, the book of Revelation. There's just, there are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But look at this, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. John had just seen Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. And he's overwhelmed, and I think it actually flatlines him. I saw him, and I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever, and I have the keys of Hades. Well, of course he did. He let him out. He got down there and unlocked it and, and, and led out the captives. I have the keys of death and Hades. I would say Jesus is the key to death and Hades. He's the one you need to know. He's the one that we follow. But he has the keys of death and he says Hades. Note this in the New Testament. Jesus never mixes up words. You need to remember God isn't loose with his language. He is always specific and intentional. And when he says Hades, he means Hades. Sheol. He does not mean hell. And we'll see that again in just a second. I'm I'm moving here. but So Hades. I have the keys to death in Hades. Over in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. Revelation 6, 8. Your fingers sprained yet? I looked, he says. And behold, an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. And so we, we see this picture of death and then being drawn out, drawn down into this place of Hades, which is, my friends, today where the rebellious dead go. Because there is still a functioning aspect of Hades. Can't go home to be with the Lord if you don't even believe in him. But there is still a waiting place. So death and Hades, all the way over in Revelation chapter 20. Verse verse 13. This is at the great throne judgment. I'm just going to throw this out to you really quickly. If you don't understand, ask me later. I think most of you do, though. At the end of this age, as we know it, Jesus is going to return to the earth. This is after the rapture of the church. There will be a seven-year tribulation. After the tribulation, a thousand-year millennial kingdom 
which fulfills all the promises that God made to the people of Israel. The kingdom will come. His, will, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there will be a thousand-year kingdom. At the end of that thousand years, what's called the great throne judgment. That's Revelation 20. And at the great throne judgment, God in all of his fairness, he opens up, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, how? According to their deeds. Not according to grace, not according to faith in Jesus Christ, they are judged according to their deeds. This is death. This is Hades now giving up at that time all those in the waiting place who have chosen to be judged on their own rather than to be judged by Calvary. Now, this is very serious, and I understand that, but we need to know the truth. And so this time of release comes for final judgment. Why does God judge them? Because he's absolutely fair. He's not gonna send anybody to hell who doesn't know exactly why, who doesn't understand. Just they go, well, check out my good and my bad. Well, okay, let's do that, and books will be opened. And that's what's talked about there in Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. All who are left in Hades at that time will have died not by faith, but by their own works, good or bad. Hades, not hell. Hell has another purpose, another description. But if you look at verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This denies annihilationism, the idea that when you die, you just disappear. This is a lake of fire, and the lake of fire is a biblical description of an eternal hell, an eternal hell, into which even death and Hades itself will finally be thrown. Understand this, the judged don't return to Hades. Hades is now destroyed. Hades is now non-existent. The waiting place is no longer there, which is why Jesus earnestly warned against hell. If you'll go back now to Mark chapter nine, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Mark chapter 9. And quickly, we're, we're almost done here with hell. <laughs> I'm done with hell. I was done with hell when I was 10 years old, just want to say. Mark chapter 9. Now just listen to Jesus earnestly warning against, not Hades, but against hell. Warning against hell. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And by the way, he's not saying literally cut off your hand. He's saying cut off what your hand is doing. He is talking spiritually here. Otherwise, we would all be stumpy. <laughs> Every one of us would be sitting here not even able to turn our Bibles. You know, I mean... It, He's making an extreme statement to say, don't do anything that could land you in this place. Hell, he says. Hell is the word he uses. Into the unquenchable fire. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. That's great. Worms and fire. This is awful. 
If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have your two feet and be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And I fully confess to you, I am lame. That's why I need Jesus. He's a crutch. Absolutely. No, he's more than a crutch. He carries me because I can barely even walk. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And so he's very descriptive of these things. Worm and fire, by the way, that that phrase comes from Isaiah 66, 24. So that's another little hint given in the Hebrew scriptures that there's something unquenchable and eternal that follows judgment, hell. Jesus uses the word hell, and we're right back to it, Gehenon, Gehenna. Some Bibles will even translate Gehenna. In Hebrew, Gehenom, Gehenom, that is the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's where the word comes from. Now, listen carefully. You may not know this. Three valleys in Jerusalem, even today. Three valleys, the Kidron Valley that separates out the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, Kidron Valley. It's a beautiful valley. It's one of my favorite locations there. The Tyropoian Valley, which is the Cheesemakers Valley, which is nice. The Cheesemakers ought to have a valley. <laughs> and there's Gaihanom, the third valley, which at the time of the first century was outside of the city. So three valleys, Gaihanom is outside the city itself. And for centuries, and this is a misnomer. So note this, get this, because I think I even wrongly taught this years ago. I know you're shocked. <laughs> For centuries, people have said the Hanom Valley was the Jerusalem city dump. That's why they used it as a word for hell. It was a burning trash dump. And so modern day theologians like Bart Ehrman, who I mentioned earlier, Rob Bell, who I mentioned earlier, say it's just a trash dump. The idea is that your life becomes, that your life is a living hell. That if you sin, that life itself is kind of hellish. It's like you're living in a trash dump, but God can get you out of that. But it's not an eternal hell. And they're wrong. And they're wrong because we know that the Hinnom Valley was never a trash dump. Note this. It was not a trash dump. There is no archaeological... Listen, archaeologists love dumps. (laughs) They do because it's filled with treasures. There are all kinds of things you can find in a city dump that tells you, informs you about the city. The Hinnom Valley has no archaeological evidence that it was ever a trash dump. No historical even reference to it ever being a trash dump. Do you know where the idea came that the Hinnom Valley was a garbage dump? It came from a rabbi in the 13th century A.D., 1,200 years after Jesus. He suggested perhaps that was. No proof, no substance to it whatsoever. Here's the reality. This is why Jesus and why first century Jews use the word Gehenom, Gehenna. The real truth is the Hinnom Valley was associated with the most horrific, brutal acts of human and child sacrifice anywhere. Live burnings to Molech and to Baal. In the Hinnom Valley, they called it the Valley of Tophet, which means drumming. Because they would beat these drums as loudly as possible, if it were possible, to drown out the shrieks of people being burned alive on these altars of sacrifice in the Hinnom Valley. It was a horrific place. God himself called that valley a place of wickedness 
and, and used it as a picture of the place where the wicked would be judged and burned. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31, they have built the high places of Tophet, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom, Dai ben Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called the valley of Tophet, or even the valley of the son of Hanom, it will be called the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet, because there's no other place. And again, by the first century, Gehenna was used to describe the fiery place of eternal judgment for the wicked. That was what the Jews understood. That's the word Jesus used for hell. And when you see hell in your translations, that's hell. Gehenna, Gehenom. Jesus uses that word 12 times in the Gospels. He also equates fire, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. And those verses are up there, Matthew 13, 41 and 42, and Matthew 13, 49 and 50. And he uses them all in the same context, fire, judgment, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. This is horrific where the fire doesn't, isn't quenched and where the worm does not die, that is hell. And that's Jesus' description of it. Are you getting this? Hell is the punishing place of divine and absolutely righteous judgment for unexpiated, unwashed, unforgiven sin, which brings us back to the first verse. Go back to Matthew chapter 10, and we'll finish here. Matthew chapter 10. And when I say finish, I mean we only have about a half an hour. <laughs> Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear, Jesus says, do not fear. Listen. Listen to the heart of compassion. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him, respect him, hold him in awe, honor him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that is not the devil. He doesn't have that power. He's not the king of hell. He will just be a resident. I love that Jesus, in this same context, and that verse has always unsettled me a little bit. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, but listen to the context in the very next verse. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? He is aware of you. He loves you. He does not want you to be in this place. Don't fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows, verse 31. Verse 30, becoming more important to me, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Which is actually getting easier for the Lord to number the hairs on my head. That's cool. But even in my young, more rebellious, more out-of-control time, when I had a whole lot more hair, he knew. <laughs> he knew every hair on the top of Rick's head. And I got pictures. I had long hair, so I can prove it. But again, again, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Note that who, who will destroy soul and body, but not spirit. You get me? Soul and body will be destroyed in hell. Spirit will not, because spirit is eternal. Spirit is eternal. Hell is eternal. The spirit of a man, of a woman, is eternal. One more misnomer, again, hell is not the devil's dominion, it is his destination. I love that old saying. 
Next time Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Satan is not the warden. Satan will be a convict. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, and that is hell. Now stay with me because this makes Christians really uncomfortable. Because if you're like me, my mind goes immediately to people I love who don't know Jesus. And I don't want to think about that. We have to think about that. We have to think about that. Otherwise, what good are we in this world if we can't speak truth, which sets us free to people who right now are lost? That hell is for real. And it is torment day and night. The Bible says forever and ever. It adds and ever as if forever is not enough for us to understand. That this is an eternal situation. I agree, Jim. I absolutely agree. I can't stand the heat. So get out of the kitchen where ignorance is baked on a daily basis. And know the truth. Here's the truth. And we'll finish. Hell is for real. Hell is forever. Hell is not a metaphor. All the things that we've seen, and you can do more study. That's why I gave you so many verses. It is not a metaphor for emptiness. It is not a metaphor for some ambiguous um, absence from God. Oh, hell is just not being where God is. No, hell is a real place. Hell is literal. Hell is torment. Hell is awful. Hell is for real. Hell is forever. But hell is not for you. Please note that. And if you talk to anybody who pushes back or who rejects Jesus or doesn't want to hear about this, that third point is vital. Hell is real. It's for real. It's forever. It's not for you. It is not for you. It's not God's intent for you. The Lord, 2 Peter 3, 9, is not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wants everybody not to repent and be religious, but to turn to him. That's his call. Please turn to me because this is not, for, I didn't make this for you. Matthew 25, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And again, I'd love to be able to tell you that eternal is not a word for hell. The problem is the same word is used for heaven. So if hell's not eternal, heaven isn't eternal, and we're just going to be there for a short time, and then who knows? It doesn't work. Eternal is eternal. And don't you think that Jesus Christ, for all of his tenderness and kindness and compassion and grace and love, don't you think he would have fought tooth and nail this idea of an eternal hell if it wasn't true? Wouldn't Jesus say, that's not the deal. But instead, what does he say? It's the deal. There is an eternal hell. Hell is for real. Hell is forever. But hell is not for you. It's, it's because of his tenderness and kindness and grace and love and compassion that Jesus talked about hell so much to give fair warning, to say don't go where God doesn't want you to go. And did you hear it? Jesus said hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why it was created in the first place. Hell is for real. Hell is forever. But hell is not for you. 
It's for the devil and his angels. Hell is not for anyone if only we accept the free gift of liberty, life, and Jesus Christ. See, that's, that's what it is, by the way. Let me correct one last thing this morning on the 4th of July. It's not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is life, liberty, in the person of Jesus. That's where our freedom comes from. That's where we are freed from ever fearing going to hell because he has prepared for it. He says, I, I go to prepare a place for you. See, this is for us. John 14, verses 1 through 3. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. That, that's, the, that's where I want you. That's where God wants you. And that's, again, that's next week's teaching. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Hell is for real. Hell is forever. Hell is not for you if you will just trust Jesus. Heaven is for you. If you refuse to trust Jesus, there is no alternative. That is the place of final judgment. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough word because it cuts to the heart. And it cuts to the heart deeply for me, Father, personally. So I, and I just say that because with my brothers and sisters, we all have the ache of knowing there are people eternally condemned if they will not trust you. But Jesus, we need this truth. We need this truth as desperately as those who don't believe it. We need to be those who speak the truth in love in these last days, who are not afraid to talk about things that are real and absolute and eternal, who are willing to stick our necks out because of the serious nature of hell. Father, I thank you for loving us so much that for thousands of years, literally going, going all the way back to the very beginning, you have warned of an eternal condemnation that you do not desire for anybody. Father, in your perfect righteousness, we recognize that these things must be. And Lord, I would ask if this is heartbreaking for anyone, if this brings a sense of fear of potential eternal loss to anyone that this would simply move us to speak of the grace of God in Jesus Christ more often, more intentionally not Father judgmentally but in the same way Lord Jesus that you did it with love and grace and compassion may we speak the message of good news in Jesus name and Father, one, one last thing, I pray if this cuts to anybody's heart who does not know Jesus, anyone who doesn't consider themselves or know themselves this morning to be saved, would you move us to come before you and to proclaim as Peter did that day, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe you. You are Lord and Savior of my life. May this bring a heart change, Father. Spirit, we wait for you to move in Jesus' name. Amen.